Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. How has your week in Strata been? Yeah, very busy actually, but I had one meeting this week, which is quite refreshing actually. I'm really pleased. Just one One meeting. Wow. How'd you get away with that? Yeah, I think it's just good planning, I think, <laughs> and, and the timing of meetings when they, they roll over on a bi-monthly or monthly basis. It just happened that I didn't have any this week except for one, so that was quite good. Yeah, good. I do talk to some managers who, by some uh, dint of bad luck, they end up with all of their meetings or most of their meetings in a particular month of the year yeah, and they have that crazy time. Before, yeah, yeah, it's sort of meetings tend to align themselves in your portfolio, but um, good yeah. on you for just getting away with the one this week. Yeah, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into your challenge for this week, Rena. Actually, the challenge that I had this week was from um, one of my previous lot owners who actually contacted me. They actually were at a meeting where there was a proxy bearer who was nominating themselves for the Strata Committee. And this was actually a tied vote. And even though there was a ballot, it was still tied. No one called for a poll, so there was no UE basis, which may have sort of broken the deadlock. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't realise that as a proxy bearer, you don't really have the right to nominate yourself to the strata committee unless the person who's given you the proxy has actually stated that on the proxy form or, or in an email or some other form. And I think that because of this problem, if the strata manager at the time had known that she wasn't eligible for election, then there wouldn't have been a deadlock. So, mm. and this woman apparently has been allowed to do this every year, Amanda. Like, and so I think for the the owner who didn't think it was right, you know, if the manager's been allowing this to happen every year and then the next year you say, no, I'm sorry, you can't do this anymore yeah, or you don't give them any notice beforehand. So, yeah, just something, something for managers and owners to think about. Um, just make sure that you cross your I's and dot your T's, get your nomination in writing if that is the intention of the person who's giving you the proxy. Yes, yeah, so I'm assuming the proxy holder is not an owner. No. And, of course, only owners can nominate themselves. Yep. If you are a non-owner, you need to be nominated by an owner and this person did not have a written nomination from a, an owner the person usually you'd find the person appointing the proxy if they also want to nominate that proxy holder for a position on the committee you'll get that nomination in writing prior to the meeting yes yeah so definitely a common trap for players for strata managers for chair people being across mm. not only the powers of proxy holders but uh, who can stand for election on the strata committee it's something we keep coming back to don't we Rena on yeah. the podcast those procedures and always a good idea for listeners to refresh on that Yeah I think my experience has been Amanda that 95% of these errors that occur in elections of strata committee members aren't an issue unless 
something goes wrong or someone challenges it and sort of finds out later on that person didn't have the right and then they challenge it, they go to the tribunal and then unfortunately um, it can get messy after that. Yeah, and it's a good point that you make, Rena, that in some buildings they can be following an incorrect procedure for many years unbeknownst mm. to them and perhaps on the incorrect advice of a managing agent and an expectation is then set that this is how we do things, we've always done it this way so it must be legal and it can come as a shock when buildings do get a qualified manager or a more experienced manager or even a lawyer in the room who says, hang on, no, that's actually not legal. Mm. It can be hard to change that that culture, if you like, of, oh, well, well, nobody's getting hurt, so why don't we proceed this way? But as you say, Rena, it only takes one disgruntled uh, person to miss out perhaps on a committee mm. appointment or to be unhappy with the appointment and then to have very good reason to challenge that. Yes. You can end up in protracted and expensive legal proceedings and nobody wants that. No. Better off to do it the right way the first time around. Yeah, get it right. (laughs) All right, that's a good one. My challenge this week is also relating to meetings and this was a question posed by a member inside the Your Strata Property online community in our forum there and it was a great question. It's something, Rena, I know you've been asked. It's something Mm. that many managers and lawyers are asked when advising strata buildings. If an owner has not paid their levies, but they turn up to the general meeting with proof of payment, perhaps they've made an EFT or a DFT payment prior to the meeting, or they've got cash in their hot little hands that they want to hand over in payment of their levies before the meeting starts. Can we accept that payment? And is that person then financial and able to vote? It's a very interesting question, Amanda, because this has happened on so many occasions for strata managers, you know, dealing in so many general meetings. And obviously now the new act, it'll be also applies to committee meetings because you've got to be financial for those. Mm. So the advice that I had received many years ago for a large scan that I used to manage um, where this was contentious issue was that the money had to be in the bank and cleared. So therefore that even though they may have paid by EFT and they have evidence, um, Cash, definitely not. Mm. But the thing is, I mean, I suppose sometimes you've got to try and use some discretion and maybe if someone's, for example, owes $1.20 because when they had paid their levy, they had paid it, say, one day late, there was some interest. Mm. And they actually weren't aware of the interest because the interest won't show up until they get their next levy statement. So sometimes, I mean, in my experience, you know, I've always allowed those smaller amounts to be accepted because – it was really not that they had realised that they were in arrears for those small amounts. Mm. Now, the EFT thing is another interesting one because I mean, obviously if someone has paid, yes. um, it's like someone and it has gone into the account. Now, it can be returned. I mean, I just had the bank write to me. Someone had paid their levies and obviously they'd been dishonoured, so there's a dishonour mm. fee. So, Yeah. The interesting thing I find is that when you look at the wording of the legislation, it does actually say that the money has to be paid before the meeting. It doesn't say received. It doesn't say received by the owners corporation. It says paid before the meeting. And remember, Mm. it's only the amount that's outstanding as at the date of the notice of the meeting. Yeah, not the date of the meeting. Correct. Yep. So if there has been an amount that's fallen due between the notice going out and the meeting taking place, well, that does not make a person unfinancial if they haven't paid. 
But it does say paid. And when I was giving some guidance to this member in the forum, I took a pretty conservative approach and said, well, this person is paying it, whether the check bounces or the EFT doesn't go through and the owner's corporation doesn't receive it is not to the point. If we take a strict interpretation of the legislation, it's that it be paid. And this person is turning up to the meeting. They have cash, for example, and this was the specific question I was asked. If that's being paid to someone who has the authority to receive that money, then it's being paid before the meeting, isn't it? And why shouldn't we give that person the right to vote? And if you look at it from a practical perspective, and I think that's what Mm. you do, Rena, I think the risk is greater refusing that person the right to vote than it is giving them the right to vote, even if you're doing so and they technically might be unfinancial when there's such a fine line there. I think we have to err on the side of giving them the vote. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between someone turning up with $3,000 cash, which, you know, in a sense, you don't feel comfortable carrying that sort of money with you home and then, I mean, the bank the next day would be okay. But I always worry about having that sort of money on me because, you know, it's what if something happens between, you know, when it gets banked and, and while it's been in my possession. Yeah. So I think that's something else that, you know, I think you know, we always had previously company policy where that we wouldn't take those sorts of amounts of cash. But anything sort of, you know, smallish or up to a couple hundred dollars was okay. Yeah. But the thing about that you mentioned, Amanda, about whether or not, you know, erring on the side of caution, years ago I actually had, this is when I first started in Stride, I might have been 2000 and one or two actually that many years ago. And um, there was a meeting where there was a special resolution. And so this owner turns up and she gave the managing agent at the time, which was me, I was just taken to the meeting just to assist, a check. And then, can't recall now, but I know then the check bounced the next day, but I think her vote had made a difference because it was a special resolution. Mm. So I don't think the managing agent at the time who I was working for said anything about the fact that the check had bounced. So no one knew, but I'm not sure like in those circumstances, Amanda, where that person's vote does make a difference to the outcome. Yeah. But then again, what you're saying is correct. It says paid. It doesn't say cleared funds. Mm. Um, I wonder if there is a way for owners' corporations to stipulate in a binding manner how mm. they will accept payments. So, for example, you may only pay via the DEFT system or EFT. We do not accept cash payments. We do not accept personal checks. We accept mm. bank checks. Uh, you mean I'm just speaking, you mean? As a matter of uh, a bylaw, I suppose. I suppose you'd need to... Well, I don't think you can stop someone from paying with a personal check. Mm. Um because I think most of the time people don't text don't bounce in manner. It's just in the minority of cases. Yeah, so. and maybe a bylaw to that effect would be harsh, unconscionable or oppressive yeah. under our new yeah. law here in New South Wales. But I'm just thinking of ways to narrow the room for dispute. Yeah, no, you're right because a lot of elderly people in manner don't know how to use, you know, EFT or internet banking. So they, yeah. many times they don't even send the cheque to StratoPay or DEF. They send it to us and then we end up going to the bank or the post office and banking it on their behalf. So yeah. I think sometimes that might alienate a generation that is not comfortable with internet banking. Yep, absolutely. Fair enough. I have uh, made that suggestion like a true, <laughs> I, I'll say Gen Y. I think I'm on the cusp of millennial and Gen Y, but I prefer to associate with Gen Y. What were you going to say? As a strata. As a strata. As a strata. <laughs> 
It's not your age, Amanda. <laughs> Thanks, Rena. <laughs> well, yes, I think the um, the moral to this story is amounts can be paid before the meeting. That's the requirement of the legislation. And if they are, I think managers should be erring on the side of caution, accepting that payment. And if that brings the owner up to date, then allowing them to vote. Yeah, the reason I just mentioned the last comment about you was that I think when you had Sean O'Day on your podcast Mm -hmm. that he talked about when he was an owner and then when he's a strider manager, the difference of what he realises what managers do Mm. um, compared to when he was a lot owner. So that's why I bring that up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was a good one. So many people enjoyed that episode. Quite a few reached out to me. He was great. Yeah, he was fantastic. I mean, obviously I was one of his managers many years ago, so Mm. I was was really um, pleased to hear his podcast. Yeah. All right. Now, your win for this week, Rena. Well, the win that I had this week was that I had a large telecommunications company that we were dealing with was trying to charge $100 to change the name of the person on the account. Uh-huh. Because as many managers know, when you ring either Telstra or any of these large companies, Exitel, Optus, they need to know who the authorised person is. And when it's a startup scheme, that's like an entity, they need a person. So, the person that had actually been involved in the account was a previous building manager. So when this building manager wanted to make some inquiries about the account, they wouldn't let him. They said, you're not authorised and we need something in writing. So we gave them something in writing to change the person that was allowed to deal with them. And said, so oh, we're going to charge you $100. And I said, hmm. oh, but because you're a good customer, we'll reduce it down to 25 Thanks. And then he said, well, I'm not going to pay you, you know, $25 just to click a few keys on the keyboard. <laughs> So I wrote back and just said, well, I don't think that's lawful that you can charge just to change the name on someone's on the account. And they said, oh, but we're a reseller. I'm thinking, well, that's not really relevant. So I said, well, we're going to make a complaint to the telecommunications ombudsman. I mean, I really wasn't, but I just, just said that because I was so annoyed like he was. It wasn't about the $25. It was just about the fact that they wanted to charge just to change a name. And so mm. the minute I said that, oh, no, we don't want any complaints. We'll waive the fee. There'd be no fee. Oh, <laughs> we'll I like it. <laughs> Nice one. But I just, I mean, I just feel sometimes a man of like you, you have to use these, you know, like go to measures that you don't want yes. to go to. But unfortunately, I think strata schemes, you know, seem to get taken for a ride by companies because, Absolutely. and even contractors, because people think, oh, well, there's so many people paying for the bill. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, the Owns Corporation may not even see the bill. I mean, they may not even realize there's been a charge. And yeah. so, um, yeah, that was a good win, I thought, for a yeah. big company, you know. And they put it in writing as well, which I was really happy about. So. Good on you. And thank yeah. you so much for sharing it. What a great forum to share that on. All the managers yeah. listening now who, yeah. who think, hey, I got that charge last week. <laughs> great. Thanks, Rena. You've just given yeah. us the uh, the way out of that. And you know what, everybody listening, that that is a sign of a good manager. And that that's the kind of thing Rena does. I've been working with Rena since I was 18 years old and she is thorough she knows her stuff and she will go into bat for you and is in as complimentary a way as I can I want to say she's like a dog with a bone she will, <laughs> she will not give up uh, thank you so much Amanda and uh, good on you thank you very I've much I've been referred sure. to as a rat up a drain pipe but I'd rather no like no not that that's the wrong expression <laughs> that is the wrong expression yeah, exactly. uh, she is persistent and uh, she is nine times out of ten she is successful so good on you 
Thank you. All right. My win for this week comes from uh, some clients that I was assisting a little while ago. They have a beautiful rooftop balcony, I'm going to call it, and they're in Sydney's northern suburbs and they have a fabulous view of the harbour from this rooftop balcony. And it's accessible via their lot and they sort of walk out these nice double doors onto the rooftop. And it is lot property, this particular balcony. And it's quite large and it has some plantings and a nice green space and they set up their chair and table and have a little uh, coffee out there in the mornings. Now, they had recently been told by their owners corporation that they actually couldn't use that space anymore because it did not have a compliant balustrade and therefore there was a safety issue with them going out onto their balcony and the owners corporation had restricted them from using their own lot property because of a balustrade issue. Well, they didn't actually... Um- Amanda suggested that they would actually fix it or make it fly. <laughs> That's the issue, Rena. That's the issue. This particular building seemed to have missed that point. They were very wrapped up in the fact that the rooftop balcony was lot property and the balustrade was non-compliant and they had this incorrect view that it was the lot owner's responsibility to make the balcony safe. And when these clients came to me in much frustration, I looked at the strata plan and I said, well, the balcony may indeed be lot property. Yes, it is. But the balustrade itself is common property and it is the responsibility of the owner's corporation under section 106 of our Act in New South Wales to properly repair and maintain that. And where Mm -hmm. it has been identified as being unsafe, then it is for the owner's corporation to fix that. (laughs) And you shouldn't be restricted from using your property because of the owner's corporation's failure to do that work. So I assisted them in drafting a letter to the owner's corporation, just explaining that and explaining that the inability to use that part of their property was causing them a reduction in their amenity, uh, a loss of value of the use of their lot, Mm. and that the owners corporation needed to get their act together and get this balustrade fixed. And the last I heard that was underway. So really happy with that result, but kind of uh, straight. This was a a building that had a, a manager. They seemed to, I think perhaps because the layout was unusual that it was the balcony itself was I say rooftop because it was the roof of the lot below so it sort of extends out and they just forgotten that it was exactly like any other balcony that might be lot property but the balustrade itself is common property and they needed to attend to it being fixed regardless what that's going to cost unfortunately they didn't have the money they needed to raise it. How did all this arise? I mean, was there like a work health and safety report being t- undertaken or what was the catalyst for this? I mean, I'm sure that base rate had been there for some time. I think there was some work being done around the building and there had been some contractors around and looking at things like waterproofing and that kind of stuff and it had been pointed out that this was a particularly unsafe place. And my clients had felt quite comfortable on the balcony, it being quite a large area and they'd sort of do their gardening there and, as I said, have their coffee and hadn't really thought about it. So when it was pointed out by this contractor, then the owners' corporation sort of jumped on that and said, oh, no, unsafe, we need to block that off, you won't be able to go outside onto Mm. that area. Area, but had made no steps and no signs of wanting to fix it. 
Uh, but good end to the story because the owners' corporation has been spurred into action, uh, and I think it's always important to share those with managers and with lot owners as well. That if you're in a similar situation, then uh, a little bit of knowledge can go a long way. And I do find it about you, Rena. I do find these days a lot of what people are coming to me with has to do with repair and maintenance of common property. I mean, mm. what is what is going on in some buildings? They just don't seem to understand that this is not negotiable. This is a strict duty. You must do it. The courts in New South Wales have said it is strict. It doesn't matter that you think it's too expensive or that the lot owner has somehow contributed to the damage to the property. Get it fixed and argue about that stuff later. You've got to get it fixed. It's only going to get worse and be more expensive in the long run. Yeah, I think you need the nail on the head, Amanda, when you said that it, sometimes it's too expensive. So I think with repair and maintenance of common property and upgrade and replacement where, where necessary, that unfortunately sometimes in some buildings that's been left to such a state that there's so much to do really and it's just trying to work out some sort of priority and also making sure that, that the funds are available to meet those commitments. And again, mm-hmm. this is where the whole capital works fund forecast comes in, previously sinking fund plan. So if people actually look at those things, and most people don't, then mm-hmm. you'd realise that you should be raising more money each year to try and make sure that when these things do need to be fixed and replaced, that the money is, is sitting there not having to use special levies. Yeah, absolutely. And you know building wants to be before the tribunal with a very long, very expensive scope of work being put to them and having an order from the tribunal to do all of that all at once. That is an overwhelming task. And buildings who do ignore their capital works fund forecast can end up in that position. Not a good place to be. All right. Well, I think that is it from me this week, Rena. Anything else from you? No. All good, Amanda. All good. Well, lovely to chat with you as always, and I shall catch you next time. Bye, Amanda. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?